This week's episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by our longtime friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with a fast, easy, and completely online process. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. He's also the advisor on Motley Fool's Rule Retirement Newsletter. When you nod your head, this is radio. We've been doing this show for two years. (laughs) You can't nod. I I, I agree with everything you just said. You're tired of me, (laughs) like hearing me say that same intro over and over again. I'm kind of tired of saying it. I'm self-conscious. You're talking about me. I don't know. I'm a shy guy. Aww, kind of a little bit. No, but you're a great guy. Thank you. That's so nice. All right, we have a special guest this week. Oh, hey, someone else is also in the room. (laughs) It's Douglas McCormick. He's here to talk about his book, Family Inc., Using Business Principles to Maximize Your Family's Wealth. We're also going to answer your question about before and after tax retirement contribution limits and share some listener feedback. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's time for Answers Answers! And today's question comes from Allison, great name, in Seattle, Washington. Allison writes, I've been investigating the options for after-tax contributions to my 401k. Can you please explain the difference between the $18,000 limit for before-tax contributions and the after-tax contributions that can, when combined with pre-tax money, reach $53,000? Fool on. Well, Allison... Such a great... And she spells it right, too. She does. Um, So, you bring up, first of all, the $18,000 limit. And it may seem that the contribution limits between 2016 and 2017 haven't changed, and that's true. You can contribute $18,000 per year to your 401k, an additional $6,000 if you will be 50 or older by December 31st of the end of the year. Hmm. Now, for that, those contributions, you can contribute to the traditional 401k. Contributions are essentially tax-deductible. Money grows tax-deferred, which means you don't pay taxes as it grows, but you do when you take it out. Most, but not all, plans also offer the Roth option. You do not get a deduction, but as long as you follow the rules, the money grows tax-free. But there is another limit, and she mentions it, $53,000, but that is actually changing. That's in 2016, it's going up to $54,000 in 2017. What's included in that? Well, first of all, that's the total amount of money that can go into the account. So, that includes that $18,000 that you put in, the employer match, if you get one. Some companies actually have profit-sharing by which they just put money in people's 401ks, whether they're participating or not. And then there's this other thing called the after-tax contribution. The thing is, not every plan allows these. Only about half of 401ks do. And it's not to be confused with the Roth. Roth is also considered after-tax because you're not getting a tax deduction, but this is separate from a Roth. Okay, so we're all, it's all 401k. It's your typical 401k, your Roth 401k, and then now we're talking after this is after tax, tax contribution. Yes. Okay. Now, so when you put that money in, you don't get a deduction, but the money does grow tax deferred. So you don't pay tax until you take the money out. There's a there was a ruling in 2014 from the IRS that made these even more attractive, and that is when you leave the company, you can separate the after tax money and put that actually in a Roth IRA, and you automatically get a Roth. So, from there on, it grows tax-free. Okay. So, a lot of people are using this to, A, save a lot of money, So because you would only contribute to this once you've already maxed out that Mm $18,000. 
It's also a way for people to get lots of Roth assets because you put that money in, and once you take the money out, it becomes a Roth IRA. And no income limits on that. No income limits on that, which is a great point because there are income limits on the Roth IRA. I'm learning stuff. You are learning stuff. I have learned a lot. So, if you are in a situation where you can put that much money into your 401k, it might be because you are in a higher income, it might be because you're, uh, you've gotten older and the kids have left the house and you're behind in your retirement savings and you want to just put a lot of money in there, it's a great way to do it. It has all, a lot of the other rules of 401ks in that generally you don't want to touch the money until you're 59 and a half, pay taxes, penalties, though there's some ways around that. Um, and I would only do it if you have a good 401k. There are a lot of lousy 401ks out there, and in that case, it's better just to put it in a regular taxable account, just invest in stocks or that don't pay dividends or very tax-efficient ETFs, and just let it ride like that. I will say that even this explanation, as detailed as it was, is, doesn't tell the whole story. So, if you plan to do this, check with your plan to see if it's allowed. And there are several kind of quirky rules about it, so make sure you know what you're doing before you make any moves. I want to thank Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans for sponsoring today's episode. Rocket Mortgage is here to make at least one aspect of buying a home less painful. In just eight relatively easy steps, you'll be on your way to refinancing or getting a shiny new mortgage. The process is completely online and ready to commence 24 hours a day. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states and MLSConsumerAccess.org number 3030. We have a guest in the studio today. This is always so nice when people come and visit us. Uh, he is Doug McCormick. He's the author of Family Inc. Using Business Principles to Maximize Your Family's Wealth. And WealthEek is, I guess you could call it a step-by-step guide to handling your family's finances with the insight and strategy of a corporate CFO. Doug, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thank you. So when I was reading your book, you know, I, I read your bio. So you went to West Point, you went to Harvard for grad school, so smart guy. But you also talked about in the book how when you left the army, you go to Harvard, you went through your savings, went fifty thousand dollars in debt, had to borrow money to move to New York City. Your first night, you're there with your wife, and it's you that was pregnant or had a kid at that point, and you're sleeping on the floor. And I think you know everyone has struggles. Like even someone as accomplished as you, and obviously a bright guy, found himself in a situation where you were thinking, "What have I gotten myself into?" Yeah, no, no doubt. I think uh, you know. Again, I call this the financial game of life because I think it's one of those things that there are different stages and different choices you got to make. And one of the things that's been so humbling for me is, you know, being talented, being hardworking, and being financially secure are not the same thing at all. And I think it just highlights that, um, you know, financial security is something that you got to be proactive about and plan. And I think many of us focus on what is timely as opposed to what is important. And, you know, managing your personal finances will arguably never be timely. But if you're not careful, it, it can be very important. And so um, those struggles helped me realize a the importance, and then b ultimately that there's a better approach or a better way to think about some of those choices. So on your website, family.com, you have 15 principles to maximize wealth. We're going to go through six of them. I'll just read it. You tell me a little bit about it, and then we can talk about it. So number one, no matter what your profession, you are a business owner. Your business sells labor and manages assets to support the spending needs of your family throughout a lifetime. I mean, this is really the whole crux of the book. So, Family Inc. basically says we're all entrepreneurs, we're all owners of businesses, and those two businesses are 
labor, and the name of that game is converting labor into financial capital, and then an asset management business, so that when you deployed or depleted all your labor, you can actually manage those assets to fund your consumption. In the book, you point out that there's actually a difference between asset management and investing. Yeah, I think basically we can all be good asset managers. Very few of us have the talents and the information and the infrastructure to be good investors. And so I'm generally an advocate of uh, let you know, do not try to be a very good investor. Be a good asset allocator, asset manager. So give me an example of of the assets you're talking about when it comes to managing those. Well, um, you know, I think one of the great things about the book is it speaks holistically about all the assets available to a family. That's labor, that's Social Security, and that's financial assets, so stocks and bonds and those kind of things. When I think about um, being a good investor versus a good asset allocator, a good asset allocator picks the right uh, portfolio, you know, stocks versus bonds. They pick the right kind of vehicle, like an ETF that's very low cost, very tax efficient, and they let it run, and they focus on the right time horizon, which is very long, with the right investment objectives, which is low cost, after tax, after fee, real appreciation. Um, and then an investor would be the guy trying to pick stocks. And for most of us, that's a tough game to, to succeed at. Here at The Motley Fool, we do talk about picking individual stocks, though we also talk about index funds and ETFs. And I often think about, we would never invest in a company that didn't know its expenses, have a good idea of what it's spending on its facilities, have an idea of how much money it's actually making, have a projection of how much it'll make down the road. Yet few people actually manage their personal finances that way. And I think that's ultimately the crux of your book, and that you're going to be more successful if you look at your household as that sort of a business. Yeah, and I think all the tools, you know, the great thing about it is, um, you know, business schools and business have been working for centuries to um, improve the tools and, and create best practices. And many of those, like managing an income statement, managing a balance sheet, they all apply to our family decisions with some minor tweaks, but there's really a good framework there to help you think through uh, some of those big choices. Right. So another one of your principles is labor is likely your largest asset and must be actively managed managed just like your financial capital. Yeah, I think this is the one that that we miss most often and I think most of us think about our jobs and we ask ourselves questions like how much am I going to make this year or when I'm selecting a job, you know, what's the opportunity this year? And the reality is the goal should be how do I maximize my lifetime income? And when you think about it that way, you have a very different duration. And you also think about things simply, or other than simply um, compensation, you think about branding opportunity for yourself. You think about the skill sets that you'll acquire. And I think those are all, you know, kind of really important uh, ways to think about that big asset. One of the things you explain in your book is basically how a way to create a present value for all your future earnings and actually put a dollar figure figure on your earning potential. Yeah. So the way I look at the world, and there's some graphs in the book um, for most Americans their point of highest wealth comes when they have the least financial assets. And so that's the newly minted college graduate. Uh, That person's, let's say, 25. They're likely to work till they're 65. And so they've got 40 years of labor capacity or potential ahead of them. And they have no financial assets. But if you add up all those years of earnings, um, they have significant wealth. And so, yeah, I do give um, specific tools. Uh, to, to help think about the value of your labor and, and ultimately maybe the consequences of big choices. So, what is my labor worth today without going back to college for a graduate degree? What could it be worth if I went back and how much would that cost me? The thing I would say about um, the labor calculator is I promise you it will be wrong in terms of the answer, 
but the framework itself is still very valuable, and I think the, the, the way it facilitates thinking about your choices is, a, is an important tool. Good. Another one, the principles of investing can be applied to your career choice to increase your expected lifetime consumption. Yeah, so, so if you get back to this whole concept of the family has multiple assets, um, it, it, I believe the same way you think about allocating your financial assets to good stocks or good investments can be applied to your, your labor assets. And so I give a number of, of ways that people should think about it. But in general, the high, um, the high level approach that I uh, often argue is, as a financial investor, I'm a value-focused investor. And as an employee, or when I think about my labor capital, I'm a growth investor. And the reason I think that is because when I'm, if I'm a value investor, I have equal risk of gain and loss. But as an employee, or when I'm managing or investing my labor, I have lots of upside in startups and interesting opportunities and very little downside, because if it doesn't work out well, I take that experience, I take the battle scars, and I go deploy my labor somewhere else. So I think you know, taking more risk with your labor um, is often prudent. And there, there are a number of uh, principles about uh, how to think about investing your labor, but essentially what they say is, think about your brand, think about the long-term choices you're making, and align yourself with good business models. Um, I think it's very hard to predict the growth rate of any business or any industry, but I take a lot of comfort in good business models survive cycles, they survive economic environments. And so, if you can align yourself with a good business, you're generally well served. Yeah, in the book, you talk about basically the way to analyze a, a potential employer is the, is the way you might analyze a, an investment. Yeah, it, it's uh, very similar in terms of concept. The big difference is um, you don't really have that how do you price the opportunity, but you can evaluate the opportunity on a relative basis. And I think that is a helpful uh, framework. So, uh, another one of your principles is entrepreneurship is an attractive way to lengthen your career while sheltering your labor and capital from competition. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think um, in general, entrepreneurship is the surest way to financial independence and true wealth creation. And I think there are really four um, reasons because of that. The first is this concept of sheltering um, your, your, your assets, both labor and capital, from competition. And I just look at, um, you know, metrics in, in the market today. So, most of us would agree if you can generate 5% um, real return in the marketplace for a, a many year period, that would probably be a very reasonable return. Uh, and the median average income in America is like 45,000, and very few people call it less than 20% and make more than 100,000 a year. Both of those things suggest to me that there's a lot of competition for return on both those assets. I find when you combine them um, to create a business, and entrepreneurship is very simply taking capital financial capital and combining it with labor capital, that you can generally um, get returns on both of those assets that are much higher. So, you know, that's the first. The second is that entrepreneurship generally allows us to extend our career. Uh, I find a lot of entrepreneurs, I work with them in my, um, you know, professional endeavors, who, you know, can be involved in the business and the important decisions until they're 70, 75, and they don't have this requirement to be all in or all out. And then I think, lastly, the tax code um, supports entrepreneurship. It's more efficient. And actually, there's one more, lastly, the fourth, um, which is a really important one. If you build a good business as an entrepreneur, you get to sell that in perpetuity, and that's a big payday at the end of a career. Now, so let me play devil's advocate, and various stats show that a good part, if not most small businesses, fail, which would indicate either A, it's not very easy, or B, most of the people trying it are doing it wrong. So I would say um, 
I'm, I'm not familiar with those stats, so so I'll, I'll let, let's take them um, at face value. I think we're probably doing them wrong, um, and I'm a big believer that entrepreneurship is a game of incrementalism. And what I mean by that is um, it's generally an extension of uh, what you've done as an employee, and over time, um, as an employee, uh, with the benefit of, of other people's money, you've created the right relationships, you've created the right skill sets, and you've created enough financial savings that you can make the leap to entrepreneurship without a lot of risk. Uh, and I think you know people underestimate uh, the capital required to get started. And that's one of the biggest challenges to entrepreneurship. It is not that you had a bad idea, you executed poorly. You ran out of money before you could see it through. And so I think that gets back to one of the concepts of you got to plan over a very long time horizon. If you want to be an entrepreneur, you probably need to start today to give yourself the financial wherewithal to have the flexibility to succeed. Uh, one of the interesting stories from your book was throughout, throughout the book you talk about your dad. Now, your dad was, didn't start off as an entrepreneur, and I don't know if you'd even consider it, but he started off as an educator and then basically moved up to where at one point he was the head of the Minnesota Higher Education Department or something That's along correct. those lines. Yep. yep. Um, and he took that role relatively late in life. And uh, I think by now he's 79, 80, mm -hmm. and he's still working, working. part-time as a recruiter. Is that, yep. as I understand it? Yep. 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 Um, so I think it's a great story about how people, someone has taken a pretty standard job, and I have sympathy with it because I used to be a teacher, leaves the workforce three times to get a better education, comes back into the workforce and just builds his career to a point where now he's happy to be working in the same general career well into his 70s. Yeah, yeah so, so um, first of all, my dad has been a, a great inspiration and also a great mentor. And not that we always agree, but a great mentor in the context of the ability to have this open conversation and me be able to learn from his you know, good choices as well as his mistakes. But I think the thing that he's done so well is make the most of his labor potential. And you know, just as an aside, this is more of a value comment than it is necessarily a financial comment. Um, I'm a big believer that the concept of retirement, as it's been viewed traditionally, is is uh, yesterday's game, and that most of us won't pursue a traditional retirement. And I think life, ex you know, life expectancies are um, increasing in a way that um, to just retire at 65 and be and not active for many years is challenging for many people financially. But I also think. Um, this new concept of part-time jobs or a gig economy where you can work as much as you want uh, is a great way to stay stimulated and engaged and feel value in what you're doing every day. And he's, he's been a great example on that front. You sort of implied in the book that um, as, a, as a broader family, you don't talk about finances, finances too much and that it actually should be sort of a family-wide discussion. I don't know if I got that right. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I think most of us don't talk about um, financial choices as a broad family. Uh, it's very personal. Um, most of us are embarrassed about bad choices we've made, or we feel like we should have accomplished more than we have, and so it's, it can be a sensitive topic. And and I think there's also the concern of entitlement. You know, if you if you have accumulated wealth, you don't want your your kids to feel like they're entitled to that that wealth. Uh, so it's a delicate conversation. Having said that, I think. This is a life skill. It's one that takes many years to get really good at, and the conversation has to start at the dinner table and the breakfast table. And I think there are lessons every day all around us. And so when you're going to you know, uh, purchase something for the home or a car or for the family, what a great opportunity to teach your kids, A, how to purchase well, B, to think about financing, and C, to think about the difference between an appreciating asset and a depreciation asset. So I try to use, um, you know, 
everyday life examples all the time with my family. They are sick of it, <laughs> but I think they'll benefit from it. Gotcha. And then the last one, every family needs a CFO. So that sort of implies that there's one person who's in charge of it. I don't know if that's what you mean. but uh, So address that, but also, what does the CFO do on a regular basis yep. to have that role in the family? Yeah, so I, I generally believe it should be one person that is the family CFO. Now, let me differentiate the person who has the aptitude and the interest and is responsible for illuminating the big important decisions and, and helping get to an answer. Um, how that decision is made is probably very different in every family. And I know in mine, while I'm the f- designated family CFO, I'm certainly not the designated decision maker. And that's a messy thing that my wife and my kids and I go through. So <laughs> that, that I'll leave to individuals to figure out how they make the decisions. But I think one person to kind of be responsible for understanding the financial implications of the choices is, is the right way to approach it. And in terms of why I believe that, you know, again, the premise of the book is we should view ourselves as a business. Um, if I told you I was a small business owner, you would certainly not assume that that business runs itself, right? And the family is really the same. Um, and I think it's much broader than a conversation around what should my stock and bond allocation be. This is a, a holistic responsibility. So I'll give you some examples. One of the biggest examples is how is the family allocating its labor to the highest um, endeavors in terms of what kind of jobs are they pursuing? Um, if we're going to make investments in education or entrepreneurship, those are important decisions for the family CFO to weigh in on in terms of, is that a good investment? How are we going to finance it? Um, traditional things that people would normally associate with a, you know, the family CFO would be budgeting, um, managing a balance sheet so I can kind of track where I am today um, and how the, the budget's going to get me to where I want to be in the future. Uh, but also things like risk mit- mitigation, which I look at as insurances of various types, life insurance, um, you know, vehicle insurance, home insurance. Um, and then I think an you know, important aspect of the family CFO role is perpetuating this expertise and knowledge through generations. And that's the educational approach to it. That's thinking about things like trusts, et cetera. So it's really a very broad, holistic way to think about the family's assets over multiple generations. And on your website, you provide balance sheet and income statement samples for people want to see that. And you, you seem to be actually not that into traditional budgeting. Um, I don't know if I got that yes, right from the book. Yes, that's accurate. But yeah. Yes. And the, the real quick take there is uh, I find that um, people that have very detailed budgets spend a lot of time establishing the budget and monitoring the budget. And it doesn't necessarily lead to improved behavior in terms of what am I saving, what am I dropping to the bottom line. So I think an income statement is more than adequate. And in an income statement, I'm just laying out very high level, what am I bringing in, what are the major expense items, and then what's left over, which is my savings or my, in a business context, my net income. And that's really what I care about. So if I, you know, I don't personally care where I spent the money, I care how much I was able to accumulate, you know, for, you know, future investment. What has been the biggest change in your thinking since you started applying Family Inc. principles to your family? Um, So I think it's this concept of appreciating multiple assets. Uh, So I think everybody myopically focuses on the financial assets. And it occurred to me, um, you know, as I'm really the first couple years out of business school, that it's harder to grow assets, it's harder to create assets than grow assets. And you create them with your labor. And so it quickly became apparent to me if I was going to generate wealth, it had to start with 
making good decisions with my labor. And so I think that was a real kind of a monumental insight for me. Um, it's pretty simple, but I think to think about it that way is, is uh, not normal. Um, but there are also all kinds of implications to that throughout your broader financial plan. For example, if you really believe that you know your labor is a big asset, then I think most people are probably way under allocated to equities as they think about um, managing their portfolio of risk, because I think labor looks like an annuity or a bond more so than it does a stock or an equity. So you study economics at West Point, went to business school at Harvard. Did you ever take a class in, in traditional financial planning? No. Um, so I've re- I read voraciously. I, I'm very interested in the topic, and so you know I'm, I'm I feel like I've been relatively well self-educated. Uh, but I think one of the benefits of the book is I'm not encumbered by a lot of the traditional thinking, and so um, I think I'm I'm offering. I, I came at it or kind of arrived at some of these answers from a different perspective, and I think that. Um, hopefully will challenge um, people's thinking as they develop their own plan. Yeah, I definitely think that is true. And why I think it's a great book is, is that you do come at, come at it from a different perspective, in particularly addressing the whole managing your labor as an asset, which is, in my opinion, severely underappreciated in traditional financial planning. But it is, to a certain degree, the biggest determinant, one of the biggest determinants of your future wealth and your ability to retire is what kind of job you have, have you diversified your labor, um, will you be able to withstand the next time there's any sort of significant recession? Will your job still be there? Those types of things. But it's just not really discussed yeah. in traditional financial planning books. Well, and I think so. That's so foundational because it, it really um, impacts your risk profile everywhere else. And so I think to get that right, you, you, can, make, you can afford to make a lot of mistakes um, when you get your labor right. Um, and so I just think it, it really is fundamental. And I think one of the challenges is our market is generally set up in a way, when I say our market, I mean the financial products market, that people are compensated to sell products. And I'm not um, critical of the industry. I'm just highlighting that a lot of this kind of advice, there's no sale associated with it. And so it's hard to engage. You know, the, the people that can benefit most from the book are probably 18, 19, 20, getting ready to make big investments in college and need to be thinking about their career choices in the context of Family Inc. Yeah, one of the phrases that you used in the book was excess education, or the penalty of excess education. In other words, spending time getting a degree that probably will not be helping you very much. Yeah, so as you can imagine, my father, the educator, uh, questions my logic there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Doug, thank you for coming in. It's an outstanding book. It was great to meet you. Appreciate it. Thank you for uh, having having me on and uh, sharing some of the concepts. It's time for some listener feedback. You guys may remember the credit no no credit score mailbag. Yes, I believe. credit score mailbag. Yeah. And Berlinda wrote uh, because she had a had an issue where she was in, when she was in college she had internet with Verizon and then she thought she canceled the service but she didn't and so the tenants that lived in the apartment kept using it but they didn't pay the bill. She found out that Verizon had updated the debt so that it looked like it was reported just this February and her credit score took a huge hit. So. I believe Dayana was on the show that episode, and your and Dayana's advice was to call the credit reporting bureaus, state your case, and then 
good luck go with God. Like yeah, there wasn't and be very, a very whole persistent. Lot. Probably there wasn't necessarily a whole lot you could do. So anyway, Berlinda wrote us to give us an update. So uh, basically, what happened is she said I called up Verizon and they would gladly take a payment, but they wouldn't amend anything on the credit report. I asked for the credit agency and Verizon refused to give me the name of who I could pay off. So that's fun. <laughs> so she instead contacted the reporting bureaus of the mistake, and as of last week, that ding is no longer on her credit report. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, I'm, I'm really very happy. So her to hear credit that. score jumped to seven eighty. And she's in the process of buying a new wow, home. Wow, nice. Isn't that great? Yeah. Yay. All right. Uh, we also got a fun email from Christian, who works at Artlux Design. They sell fashion, illustrations, and gifts. And she shared our Science of Better gift giving episode to her newsletter subscribers. Oh, that's good. Isn't that fun? Thank you. Uh, I also want to thank none of the above, Cody D, Irv Wash, and others who left reviews of the show on iTunes. Uh, we get emails from people who say they've been listening to our show since the beginning, which is kind of crazy. And it just so happens that this is our two-year anniversary episode! Wow. And two-year anniversary is, what's the, the substance or whatever that's associated Did I say it was it? cotton? Cotton. I think you said it was cotton. Is it cotton? Well, just because I said it before it doesn't make it any more right. <laughs> This is Keep that me. in We're mind, talking. podcast listeners. Just because I've said it more than once, it doesn't mean I'm right. First year, okay, second year is cotton or China. But I have no room for a country of that size. <laughs> <laughs> That's not funny at all. All right, yes, so it's, it's cotton or China. In the spirit of that, I decided to ignore all of the gift-giving advice from the episode we just did, and I bought you two a couple anniversary presents. Yay! That is very Aww. thoughtful of you. Here, do you want to open yours? Yes, I Here, do. Here, open yours. Okay. All um, right, I know this makes for great <laughs> podcast radio. Oh, a shirt! I bet it has cotton, was it? Oh, oh. <laughs> well, listeners, it is like an ugly sweater, but it's a t-shirt, and it's got a T-Rex with <laughs> Santa Claus, because if you've ever seen... The video version of this, you know that I talk with my hands, but I kind of keep them close you in. keep them tight. A little bit like a T-Rex. And so he'll talk, and he'll kind of <laughs> shoot his little hands out like he's a little T-Rex. And so that's why I got you a shirt with a little T-Rex on it. Rick, okay. do you want your present? Sure. All right. Well, uh, at least you can hear the wrapping paper here. Right yeah. For my... so I got it on Etsy. It's from Etsy. Of course. Of course. Shipped first class. Oh, no, it's a Trump-scented candle. <laughs> <laughs> we did it when we had uh, Kimberly Palmer on the show. We talked about all this. We did the game Etsy or not Etsy or whatever we called it. And there was a Putin-scented candle that came up. And I said, well, you can not get you can get a Putin-scented candle, but it's not on Etsy. I don't know. Anyway. I don't know if I can get my little hands around the lid here. Sunday lotion and steak. Oh, that's horrible. Isn't it awesome? It looks so funny. That is really horrible. <laughs> thank you, Allison. Well, thank you guys for doing this show with me for two years. Well, I got a present for you. <laughs> so the wrapping paper is used putting your face on the copy machine. I have photocopied at the Molly some, and copying of, some, but not all of my favorite body parts as the wrapping for this present. <laughs> Star very Wars. Nice, very Star Wars. It's a uh, Van Gogh Star Wars. Ah! There's a there's a little something in there in there for the each of you as well. It's just I love it. The whoopee cushion. The whoopee cushion. Yes, <laughs> each of you got a whoopee cushion, and I love that it's multicultural. It has the Spanish term for whoopee cushion. A whoopee cushion and a Star Wars T-shirt. You know me so well. <laughs> well, I have a gift for you guys as well. You do. However, I took your advice. Um, well, I was. Is it going an experience? I, it is an experience. Oh no. I got an experience for each of you. Okay. We're going to experience it all here together. 
Right now? Yeah, right now. <laughs> What's, okay. Um, I was going to get you like a ruler and a pen uh, and write out, you know, write out the two things. <laughs> How would you care about us? But I, I didn't have time. I mean, I didn't make time. I mean, uh, <laughs> so instead I wrote you each a poem. Oh. Wow. I know that's kind of mushy. I went out on a limb, uh, my own personal limb, which would make it a limb Oh, rick uh-huh. All right. So I'll start with bro. Here we go. Okay. There once was a fool named bro who managed his cash like a pro. Huh. He tried to lose weight, but whatever he ate, his assets continued to grow. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. You ready for yours, Allison? Yes. With Allison's hand on the wheel... The show's answers are sure to appeal. Though your heartstrings she'll tug, there'll be no special hugs. <laughs> <laughs> but a postcard will make the girl squeal. <laughs> Bill Curtis has nothing oh. on you. That's all I got to oh, say. Oh, that's so good. I'm going to put that on a pillow. Embroider <laughs> that. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you, that was Rick. Very nice. Thank you. All right. So. Yeah, happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Here's to two more. At least. Yeah. Why not? What what are you doing for the next two years? (laughs) This, I guess. I guess. I guess. All right. So uh, I want to thank all of you guys as well for supporting the show and listening for the last two years. Uh, And just this last year alone, we've answered probably about 100 questions. I doomed the whole state of New Hampshire to alcohol poisoning. And we learned the joys of listening to the show at half speed. Mm-hmm. I did my best to convince you that bro is the weird one. I don't know if I <laughs> succeeded or not, but it's true. We received so many postcards and other amazing gifts, like mugs from South Dakota and Stay Foolish art and amazing chocolate. You guys really are the best. So um, I don't have a gift for our listeners, uh, unless you consider us doing the show some more a gift, then you're welcome. <laughs> but we enjoy, we enjoy doing it, too, so... I guess as long as everyone's having a good time, we'll keep going, huh? Absolutely. All right. So there's no show next week. So yeah, this is it for the year. Happy holidays, everybody. Happy Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Looking forward to an outstanding 2017. All right. Well, our email is answers at fool.com. For Rick Engdahl and Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. (laughs) 